0: Welcome to the Top Order podcast, Women's World Cup Glory for Australia. We've got the IPL, Australia versus Pakistan ODIs, as well as New Zealand and the Netherlands and South Africa, Bangladesh. All coming up on This Week in Cricket. Stay tuned. Well, Baldy, I'm getting a little bit fed up of this, letting you open the podcast due to yet another Australian victory. This time, it's the women in Canary Yellow that are lifting the silverware. Women's World Cup, obviously on home soil for us here in New Zealand. Um, a fantastic climax at Hagley oval home of uh, Rickerton of course so I'm sure Lippy will be uh, pretty uh, pretty swift to get that um, into the podcast as well but border you must be delighted with the dominance that Australia have showed in this tournament uh, over the course of the last three or four weeks oh absolutely
1: ecstatic Adam and, and boys it was it's it was a fitting climax in my view to a fantastic tournament it was an exciting game of cricket it was a really high quality game of cricket actually befitting the high quality of cricket that we've seen at this women's world cup and look england refused to go away in that run chase you know you would think that 357 in a world cup final is an absolutely ungettable score and australia in the end winners by 70 or 80 runs in the wash-up but england just refused to go away in that run chase it was an absolutely outstanding performance for nat siver we'll get to her 148 the third highest score ever men's or women's score in a world cup final bested by Alyssa Healy's 170. It, look, it was just an absolutely outstanding batting performance from both sides, really, and it was just a, an absolute joy to watch and a fitting climax to the to the Women's World Cup, which has been of an excellent standard.
2: Yeah, I think you're right in terms of let's get to Nat late later because uh, I agree, brilliant performance from her, but, you know, I know you like to play it down, Baldy, but Australia were just brilliant. They were brilliant for the whole month. They were... They just showed what a class outfit they were. You know, I think there's been a lot of talk since they won that World Cup about are they the most dominant cricket team ever? Uh, You know, I think they they certainly belong to be in that conversation. You know, I'm not probably a cricket historian enough to really answer it, but I can't think of many more teams that I actually thought going into this World Cup, they just win. Like, it it really, I can't ever think that in terms of... uh, you know, certainly I haven't watched as many women's World Cups. I've never thought that about a men's World Cup. I, you know, there's been times in the middle uh, 2000s there where, uh, you know, you sort of thought Australia was very, very hot favourites, but you always thought someone could beat them. And I know England, you know, pushed them hard in a couple of games. They, you know, I agree at times when Nat Civil was batting there, you sort of thought maybe they could just do this if Charlie Dean just bats for a bit longer with her, but. Honestly, they, they just never looked like they would lose that whole tournament. And, uh, yeah, just hats off. I mean, I'm, I'm going to have to quit the podcast if Australia keep winning World Cups. But, uh, yeah, can't can't take it away from uh, this women's team. Just tremendous.
1: I'll have to get on the phone to the Australians and make sure they don't win the upcoming World Cup in Australia at the back end of this year. Otherwise, I'll be doing this podcast on my own. This is the most dominant Australian cricket team I think we've ever seen. In terms of the last, what, four or five years since they lost the World Cup semi-final in 2017, this has been a five-year journey for that women's side to avenge that loss. And they have been the most dominant cricket team in the world for the last two or three years. And that doesn't always translate to success in a tournament like the World Cup. But they have done themselves absolutely proud Australia. I think, in my view, they are the most dominant Australian cricket team ever. And I think they're actually the most complete cricket team that I've ever seen assembled on the field. It doesn't matter where you look in that Australian side, whether it's the top five, whether it's the all-rounders, the finishers, the bowling attack from pace to spin. Australia have not only got dominant, dominant players and players that are not just the best of their era, but could be arguably the best of any era all up and down that side. And they've got depth coming into that uh, into that side to replace them. Alana King came into this tournament. She was outstanding in the final, took three really, really key wickets. You know, you've got um, upcoming Darcy Brown. Megan Shute is a world beater. Elise Perry, we haven't really talked about Elise Perry in this World Cup, but she has been, you know, under the radar. She's had a really good tournament. And then you want to talk about the absolute superstars of this Australian side. We talk about Rachel Haynes. We talk about Alyssa Healy, Meg Lanning, Beth Mooney that engine room of the Australian run-making machine that has been the strongest part of this Australian team in this World Cup. And you know what? Australia have been put under pressure. You might say, Stu, they never look like losing, but Sides took it to Australia in this World Cup and put them under pressure at different stages. And it just shows how good Australia are, this women's Australian team is, that they were able to respond to each one of those pressure situations, make really, really calm decisions under pressure And they executed their skills better than anyone in this tournament in those key moments. I think some teams in this tournament got really close to Australia but just weren't able to execute in the key moments. And time after time after time, this Australian women's side executed under pressure or saw an opportunity to lay down a marker like they did against the West Indies in that massive opening partnership. Look, they did against England in the final with that massive opening partnership. And again, at the end of the innings, they were really able to lay down a marker and, and assert their dominance on the game when they had the opportunity to do so.
2: Binksy, I mean, uh, yeah, I want to come to you because, I mean, it's pretty remarkable really watching that opening stand. And then, you know, we've got this far in the, the podcast. We've we've really, Bordie's only just mentioned them, really. I mean, you know, you're pretty your team's in pretty good shape when both your openers break the record for, for most runs in a World Cup. I, I'll give my little New Zealand plug. It's it's I actually think it's pretty impressive that Debbie Hockley's record lasted this long when, uh, you know, if you consider, you know, how the game always changes and, and develops over the years. it's uh, It shows you how good she was. But, I mean, what were your thoughts, Binksy, when you were watching those two bad? I mean, there must have been a point where you thought, like, are we ever... Are we ever going to break this partnership?
0: Yeah, look, I'm pretty sure I, I mentioned that on text to during the course of uh, the final, a little bit of kidology in there trying to take a wicket um, in the Slack channel. But I think it was, Have has there ever been a, a women's ODI where there isn't a wicket taken in the first innings? I think was my question. Um, but look, joking aside, England had their chances, their, their fielding throughout the course of the tournament was a bit stuttery, I think, towards the start of the tournament. And then um, they got into their work a little bit as they played in, what, four or five must-win games in a row. But um, certainly dropped both Alyssa Healy and Rachel Haynes, I think both in their 40s. Um, so, Prior to 50. Yeah, so look, I think a couple of chances... There, I think I'd just echo the comments that you've made around the professionalism of this side. I think no, look, um, no surprise really that a side that's had a really, really good professional structure for seven or eight years now in in the Australian women's um, setup. The women's Big Bash League has obviously uh, been a great sort of domestic tournament to give players. I guess exposure to some of those big game scenarios um, on you know big cricket grounds as well which I think has helped in terms of maybe getting used to that kind of atmosphere and um, other nations look really are chasing Australia in terms of being able to put that level of infrastructure in place to to really you know set the the foundations for for a solid women's game the the thing I'm most disappointed about I think from England is from a batting, uh, from a uh, you know a bowling perspective, it was 50-50 decision at the toss. I actually don't really mind the decision that Heather Knight's made at the toss. If she felt the best way to win the game was to chase, then look, that's fine. I've got no issue with that. If that was the tactic, um, but I, I think it was the manner in which um, England probably didn't adjust their plans bowling to Australia. I thought bowled a little bit short. Uh, throughout the course of that first innings. Um, but a massive credit's got to go to, to Healy. What was really disappointing for me is where you saw the abbreviated scorecard um, at the end of the game, and you, and you look at the fact that England have left 40-odd balls out on the field to score from. Um, and they've had three players in, um, I think, Beaumont, uh, Heather Knight, Amy Jones, to a lesser extent, Sophia Dunkley, who've all actually got in. When you look at the way the Australians crafted their innings, um, Haynes only struck at 73 um, because Healy was going so well. And then Mooney was able to come in and put the icing on the cake at the end of the innings with a, you know, a fantastic uh, 50 of... Off, uh, Forty-seven balls. If one of those England girls had gone on to turn their twenty into a, a a fifty off, um, you know, eighty balls or something like that, there'd have been someone for Siver to bat with in those last forty-one balls, and then you know, they might have had the, the opportunity to pull off an unlikely chase. So look, I, I I think I'm I'm really really disappointed, particularly in Catherine Brunt, um, getting out stumped. With 20 overs to go, when all she needed to do was probably bat for 20 minutes and um, and really try and get you know keep her side in the game, and um, and then to a lesser extent because I don't think you can blame number 11, but this is the second time that Anya Shabasol Souls decided to have a slog uh, when someone's set at the other end in the tournament as well. So just not taking the game as deep as uh, as they um, as they probably uh, probably should. But some high points: Siva. Eccleston showed why she's number one in the world um, although didn't have a great final but then I don't think any bowler really had a great final if you look at it Um, probably um, with the exception of Alana King uh, three for 60 odd Um, but yeah look just massive credit to to Australia awesome to see 500 um, runs from from Alyssa Healy and and 490 odd from uh, her opening partner and Really, the quality of the cricket and the and the highness, if that's a word, of the scores has really been brilliant throughout the course of the tournament. We've seen, you know, plenty of boundaries and, and plenty of exciting, high-scoring games as well. Yeah, that's the thing that that's really opened
1: my eyes in watching this tournament, and I think will open the eyes of a lot of people who don't watch a lot of cr- women's cricket. This is an absolute shop window for women's cricket. It is. It has been a fantastic tournament. And I think it just shows the change in mindset that women's cricket has undergone in recent times in that England were chasing 360 in a final, needed 110 off 80 balls. And I don't think there would have been very many Australians who were sitting there very comfortable. I was certainly moving around in my seat even more than I normally would be and even more nervous than I would normally would be in a final because eight plus and over now is very gettable in a women's ODI chase. 120 off the last 10 overs for Australia is not out of this world unheard of it, this is the expectation now that this is how these w- games of women's cricket go and you have a look at the strike rates all up and down the tournament Alyssa healy struck at 103 throughout the tournament beth mooney averaged 110, struck at 100. Meg Lanning averaged 56, struck at 88. I mean, if you talk about Nat Skiver, her her strike rate across the tournament, 436 runs at an average of 72 and strike rate of 92. This is the the standard that women's cricket has elevated itself to over the last three years, and it's just been a fantastic tournament. I can't stop talking highly enough of it um, in the wash-up.
2: Yeah, and I'll just follow up on that, really, to give a shout-out to the, the tournament organisers. I, I think uh, they deserve a lot of credit for the way this has gone down, just because, you know, I mean, here in New Zealand, Omicron hits just before the tournament starts. Teams are having to quarantine before they get to the country. We weren't sure if we were going to get crowds. We, I actually personally thought, oh, they're just not going to get crowds because of the way that, uh, you know... Covid restrictions have been throughout New Zealand, but they managed to to find a way in all sorts of different situations to have pods of a hundred and and really get crowds into the into the uh, stadiums as much as possible, and actually generate buzz for a tournament where it could quite easily have just been a tournament that that really died in the water and and people saw it on on TV and maybe didn't really see much of it on TV because it wasn't out there because there just wasn't people around there was no opportunity to talk about it but i think you actually had casual fans of the white ferns which is something you just don't re- you know it's not really something that's happened before i don't think in, in uh, you know in the conversation of, of new zealand cricket that i've been a part of before you know everyone had their opinion on the white ferns uh, you know failing to to get over the line in those few games that they uh, they they didn't get they no, just close games. So, yeah, I, I think, as you said, Hagley delivered a, a perfect crowd and, and some high-quality performances in that final. And, yeah, just well done to Andrea Nelson and her team. I, I really hope it's just inspired, uh, you know, that next generation of, of girls and boys to, uh, to continue cricket in New Zealand. It's been great.
0: Well, chaps, let's move on and let's take Bori from a, a high to a low immediately. Really play with a cricketing roller coaster of emotions. And um, Pakistan getting up two one in this one day series, chasing down a, a small target after two pretty high scoring uh, games in the first two ODIs. All three day night matches in. Lahore, but Baldy, look, I don't want to make excuses, but a few of your IPL players obviously missing from your first choice and um, white ball lineup. But look, I guess from a neutrals' point of view, it was, um, it was great to see the performances that some of the the Pakistan team um put in throughout the course of this uh, little series. Um, and look, I look, I was delighted to see. And um, Babar Azam, uh, 100 in the final game and being named player of the series as well. Um, he really is fantastic to watch.
1: Oh, look, full credit to Pakistan. They've played some highly, highly entertaining cricket and just showed how dangerous a side they are. This is a Pakistan team that let's go back October last year, at the beginning of that T twenty World Cup, we were talking about Pakistans as being potential favourites for the tournament. This ODI series against Australia has done nothing to dispel my view that Pakistan are one of the best white ball cricket teams in the world at the moment. They are as good as England. They are as good as anyone you want to see put out there, particularly when you talk about Rizwan and Baba Razam with the bat and their bowling options are just outstanding in one day cricket. Look boys don't be don't be um, don't be confused about this series this is all going to plan for australia a tricky build up to a major tournament is just it's going absolutely perfectly at the moment finch is under pressure now we had warner under pressure last year to maintain his spot on the side it's finch's turn to absorb all of that pressure this year he's going to come out in the world cup and be an absolute superstar you can you can You've heard it here first. Um, don't worry about him getting his front pad in the way of, of fast bowling. He's been doing that for years. He's, he's got you all fooled. It's all under it's all under control. We're unearthing Marcus Stoinis and Cameron Green this year as all rounders. We did it with Mitchell Marsh last year. Look, it's all going perfectly according to
2: plan. Yeah, ab- absolutely, Baldy. That's uh, that's how you win World Cups, isn't it? You just you either don't go on any tours or you just lose all your games. It seems to be a uh, yep. perfect formula.
1: That is the absolute perfect formula and Australia are just playing the same card again and again and again. Look, in all seriousness, there is a bit of a concern at the top of the order for Australia as regards Aaron Finch because he's our white ball captain. We can't just summarily drop the guy because he's out of form and replace him with a guy like Travis Head who scored 100 um, and has made runs in this tournament. Ben McDermott has made runs in this tournament. I'm not... A huge McDermott fan, I think, in Australia's best side. He's probably not in the eleven. He might not even be in the squad, but he certainly made runs in in this particular series. I think Travis Head is a ready-made option if Australia decide to go another route, but I think we need to give Finch every opportunity to find some form, um, maybe get a smaller front pad or something like that before before we get back on home soil for defending this T20 World Cup. But I think Australia, in terms of stoyness, in terms of green, they've got some ready-made options there in the middle order. And look, Matthew Wade is a finisher, doing a good job in the IPLL as well. So um, the only thing that's a little bit concerning for me, genuinely concerning, is some of these pace bowling options. We didn't have... Um, Great success in terms of our pace bowling options in this tournament. We're still going back to Jason Berendorf and guys like that. I think we've got better options back in domestic um, cricket that may, may be available for Australia in future. I think we're going to rely on our old firm of Stark, Cummins and Hazelwood for this T20 World Cup coming up. I don't see any other Australians really sort of catapulting themselves into that reckoning, um, it will, remains to be seen, I guess, what Daniel Sams is going to do in this IPL. But there's some question marks there, I think, a little bit. But I'm sure, look, Aaron Finch was very happy with what he saw from his pace bowler. So, you know, he seems to have it all under control. And in Finch we trust at this point.
0: Border, you mentioned the IPL. Nice segue there to progress in the early stages of this tournament. Um yeah, we we tipped Rajasthan and the KKR in our preview show. They've got off to pretty decent starts. What else has caught the eye, um, as well as of, of course a uh, hundred for my countryman Joss Butler, one of the bright points in uh, only bright points in English cricket over the course of the last six weeks or so. Yeah, geez, uh,
2: that was an impressive innings. He's he he loves T uh, Twenty cricket and loves the IPL, doesn't he? He's uh, I mean, yeah, as you say, he's that's a, a real bright point. And I, I think that, I was saying to Baldy before, I, I sort of just can't understand really the the betting agencies and how they're, uh, how they're operating in this IPO. I mean, obviously this is not, uh, you know, the Top Tip podcast, but, you know, we talked about the Royals, and, and yeah, when we said that they were, uh, you know, on paper looked fantastic, they were... Uh, long outsiders to start the tournament now they're the betting favourites I really don't understand why uh, there's such fluctuation in the market when as you just said it's a really really long tournament I mean you know Mumbai has made a tough start Uh, CSK has made a tough start which we might talk about a little bit but you know, I just think people have got to calm down a little bit there's a lot of players that aren't still at this tournament and as soon as they turn up as soon as we get a couple of weeks in and teams are actually sort of got their sides together, it's going to be a much better picture of, of who's actually starting to perform well and who's not.
1: The only thing that I think will be concerning for Mumbai and CSK, who between them have gone 0 for 5, Mumbai 0 for 2, CSK 0 for 3 to start this tournament they don't want to get too far behind that race for those final four spots. There's only four spots, which means you're going to need to have a better than 50-50 record to get into this final four. Mumbai and CSK aren't far away from having to win nine out of 10 games to finish their slate to get themselves into a position where they're jockeying for final spots. I reckon they've got to be somewhere around nine and five, maybe maybe eight and six to get into those final final four spots so if you have a look at where mumbai and csk sit now they can only afford to drop two maybe three more games over the remaining slate so they can't get too far behind the eight ball these teams waiting for their for their other names to arrive rcb and, and delhi capitals they're kind of one and one they're kind of a push at the moment LSG's been a bit better than I thought they'd be to start the tournament. Definitely Gujarat Titans have been better than I thought. They're 2-0 and at the moment to start the tournament. And the Punjab Kings have actually been the surprising Kings team. I thought the Super Kings would be better than the Kings but it turns out at the moment Punjab are 2-1 and, and the Super Kings are and 3 So there's, look, as you say, there's a long way to go in this tournament, but early form suggests that the Royals and KKR are looking pretty good.
2: Yeah, Gujarat, Gujarat's been a nice one. I mean, obviously follow them a little bit with uh, with Lockie Ferguson in the side. And yeah, I mean, he, he bowled tremendously the other day. And yeah, that, that I think that's the thing with them. They've got a great bowling attack. It's going to be whether they can put enough runs on the board. And at the moment, they're doing sort of just enough to, to get across the line. And if they can... Yeah, if, the, if they can put 170-plus on the scoreboard every single time, with Lockie, with Rashid Khan, with Mohamed Shami, they're going to be a good side and, and a really tough out against everyone. So, yeah, maybe they are the surprise packet.
1: And that, that Delhi Capital side wasn't a slouchy side either. They had they had a couple of guys out, but they still had Punt, they still had Prithvi Shaw, they still had Rovman Powell, they still had Dakur, like they had... A good. They had a good enough batting lineup to get 160 if they were good enough. But uh, the the Gujarat Titans bowling attack was was really strong.
0: And look, that's going to be interesting to see as we go throughout the course of the tournament, playing at just the three grounds as well. Whether the pitches are able to kind of get up for the 74 games or whatever it is that they need to uh, need to get in. So yeah, I guess if they do get a little bit uh, slower and drier and start to to spin, then. And yeah, that could actually really help some of these, you know, these teams like Gujarat, who, as you mentioned, have got a pretty decent, uh, decent bowling attack if they can get, you know, 150, 160. They'll feel as if they're in the game with an attack that's got genuine pace and mystery, uh, mystery spin. And Baldi, I know we talked in our preview about Mumbai and uh, the
2: fact that they sort of unearth someone uh, every year. I know that uh, they haven't made the best of starts, but it, it does look like maybe Tilak Vama is, is that player. It's certainly looked a, you know, a real talent so far, putting the runs on the board in, in both games. Played an incredible reverse sweep off uh, off Ravi Ashwin in the last game. Did end up getting dismissed next ball and Ashwin gave him a bit of a yell, which uh, which is what you're allowed to do uh, when someone reverse sweeps you for six and then you get them out. But, you know, he looks a serious talent and, um, yeah, if he if he can continue his form and, and you've got someone like Ishan Kishan uh, leading that charge for them as well, mm. then they're, they're still going to be a good team to, to at least watch whether they can get their runs on the board and, and actually get the... The W's racked up, who knows? But I think they're going to be an exciting team to watch at least.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Varma has been a great uh, great find for Mumbai. He's batted at that tricky number four position that Ishan Kishan previously had adopted for the Mumbai side. We haven't seen much from Tim David yet, a couple of low scores for him to start the tournament. I think they're going to rely on Tim David and Kyron Pollard really quite heavily for for runs at the end of the innings. Obviously, Rohit and Ishan will... Ishan Kishan will be trying to lay the platform like they did against the Delhi Capitals, even though they went down in that game. You know, Rohit got 41, Ishan Kishan 81, not, and then Varma had a couple of 20s. So I think that's their platform, right? Is that those guys have got to bat through the innings, and then it's Varma, it's Pollard, it's Tim David provi- providing the fireworks at the end. Maybe a little bit of Daniel Sams, he's not a bad hitter as well. If he gets sort of seven or eight balls, he could get he could easily get you 20-25. So I think that's the formula for them. I just I just am a little bit concerned about their bowling attack and whether or not it can um, provide the kind of um, high quality that it did last season when they had a, a slightly different-looking attack and it looked a lot more penetrative uh, than it does this year without the Pandias, without um, some of those extra options that they had last year. Not that there's anything um, against guys like Timon Mills or, or Daniel Sams. I think it's just it's not quite that um elite level bowling attack that we saw last season
2: and, and binksy i'll give you a shout out a couple of your claims during the uh the preview show of uh looking pretty good at the moment you calling uh, liam livingston a, a genuine all-rounder at, at uh, t20 level he's certainly uh, at least in the last game put on a, a real show uh and uh you know backing your man dre russ uh, constantly yeah brilliant brilliant innings the other day from him he's uh Yeah, KKR is going to be going well if he can continue that form.
0: Yeah, and look, I guess um, we like a bold prediction or two. I don't think Tim David stays in this side much longer. Um, So, yeah, could be the most expensive player in the tournament is um, using his skills to mix uh, the Gatorade, I think, uh, in the weeks uh, to come. Let's move on from the IPL, though. We're going to have plenty more of that on the podcast over the course of the next Uh, five or six weeks or so. We are in the middle of a test match in Durban. I say the middle, uh, very much approaching um, the end. Bangladesh crashing to 48 for seven um, in their chase of 274, which looks uh, bloody unlikely here unless uh, they can get Nat Siva or Alyssa Healy um, (laughs) into bat late in this um, reply. But there's been some questions in this uh, test match from Shaqib Al-Hassan about the home umpiring. I know it's something that we've talked about on the podcast previously. Now we're you know, back to a little bit more normalcy in terms of travel. Should we be back to neutral umpires? Have Bangladesh got any rights to gripe here with the home umpires seeming to favour certainly the umpires' call in favour of their home side?
2: Well, I'll, I might let Ball the answer, uh, you know, he's got the, the closest person to an umpire um, out of the three of us. But I, I think uh, in terms of whether they've got a bit of a gripe, I think they, I, I'm not of the opinion that umpires, you know, in this day and age make calls on purpose for any teams or favour any, I, I think that's kind of ridiculous because one, you get found out pretty quickly these days with uh, the TV technology and, and all that kind of stuff. And being an umpire is actually quite a lucrative job at the moment. So if you if you actually want to earn a living and do a good job at, at that, then you want to try and get all your decisions right so that you can move up the rankings and uh, and get as many test matches and and uh, internationals as you can. But in terms of having a gripe, I can see I can certainly see where they're coming from in this test match because, yeah, I mean the Uvea decision was probably the one yesterday that that I just. I couldn't believe that it was given not out live. Uh, that was one that they did end up reviewing and, and uh, you know, the three red lights just went bang, 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 because yeah, live, it just, I, I put my, my finger went up, you know, as soon as it hit the pads, it was crashing into to the stumps. And yeah, I don't know. There was there's just, just a lot of decisions. I know that they didn't review one that um, had they done, so it would have been out and, and I, and i guess you know you can always sort of point to that and say well they should have reviewed it it's the technology's there there's with the neutral umpires there are three reviews there's no real excuses i actually think yeah with three reviews there's no real excuses to be running out of reviews or or any of that kind of stuff that means you have mismanaged your reviews but it's an interesting question and because the the neutral umpires i think it's really cool that we've seen Someone like Chris Brown, who we talked to, uh, you know, a while ago on the podcast, got got to umpire and uh, home tests in New Zealand. I think that's something that's really cool. And but you know, if if umpires are not making the right decisions, it does throw up those questions of is you know are they favouring the home side? And and you're always going to have that no matter how good the umpire is.
1: You're always going to have that no matter how good the umpire is because there's the there's the equivocal nature of umpires call in the decision review system. So if an umpire gives the same guy not out when he's when the home side is batting and then gives another guy out when the home side is bowling, that's going to look like there's favoritism for an umpire and I'm not suggesting at all that that's taking place, but that's where people start to get that give, get that perception and I think if you've got away umpires just like people do in the park cricket when you've got player umpires you always think that the umpiring is going against you maybe if it's 51 49 you still feel like the majority of the decisions have gone against you. So there's always that perception that, you know, the, the rubber, the green never goes your way. And you certainly don't remember the ones that you got that were lucky. You always remember the ones that you didn't get that were unlucky. So I think there's that perception amongst all, you know, all people um, tend to hold on to things that go against them a little bit more than the things that go their way. It's very very hard to be an international umpire and, and be biased. There's no there's no sense of impropriety there. I, I actually don't feel very strongly about the need to go back to neutral umpires. I think generally speaking, the umpires that we've had provided they are of the highest quality are doing a really really good job. The only so, the only time I think we should go back to neutral umpires is if there is a situation where you can't get enough high standing umpires in a particular country. To be able to officiate those big those big matches, right? Um, that would be the only reason to go back to the elite panel is to make sure you've got the best of the best umpiring all Test matches. And if you did that, maybe there's a there's a view that the home umpire would get preference for matches in his own country to minimise travel and to provide that opportunity. That would be the only reason I would I could see for going back to an elite panel of umpires umpiring every fixture rather than using home umpires for every test match. Certainly for ODIs, I have no problem with with home umpires whatsoever because you're right. There are more than enough reviews to go around if you use them judiciously. Bangladesh did not use their reviews judiciously in this particular test match. Like you said, they they missed a golden opportunity to review and get a decision. And we see that all the time with players. You know, we saw that in the Australian series against Pakistan. Reviews not being used appropriately by the Australians. And to be fair, my boys have, have got a pretty poor record when it comes to using reviews. So I certainly can't sit here and go, well, you know, Australia are not getting the rub of the green because historically Australia haven't been very good at using the decision review system at the best of times so yeah I don't have any problem with it to be fair. The
0: the only thing I'll add I think uh, probably a slightly different take to, to Baldy is I, I think that there's going to be certain countries where they, they just don't necessarily have that depth on the bench and I also think that umpires work really well now and you see it all the time in the way they communicate as a team on on the field of you know the, the, the two umpires standing in the middle and um input as well obviously now from the the third umpire off the field particularly with no balls and things like that i just wonder whether or not someone on the elite panel um actually umpiring with a home umpire actually then raises the standard of umpiring across international cricket a little bit longer term if you've got you know um, a Mariah Rasmus or a Richard Kettleborough, whoever it is, on the road, um, helping bring you know the standard of umpiring where it, there might not be that bench strength, and um, and then I think the other factor is if you are playing those long test series, you know five test series in um, in Australia or England or India, and um, the umpires need to swap in and out as well. So then you you're definitely not going to have the same quality of umpiring throughout a long series if you give. Um, you know the better umpires of rest whereas with the international panel you can almost fly in a fresh crew for a couple of test matches and um, and then make sure that you've not only got the best standard on the field of play from a playing perspective but also the very best officials as well so maybe that'd be something I'd throw in is that sort of half and half approach to the way that they, they might work it in the future
2: and look, just before we leave this South Africa-Bangladesh series, I mean, you've already mentioned the score. They've actually picked up another one while we've been talking. It's fifty for 50 oh, wow. for eight now. And um, and I, I just want to say really that um, I'm quite I'm really looking forward to watching the highlights today. And I know maybe the two of you, or Baldy probably is, uh, but it's South Africa's bowled uh, opened with two spinners. Maharaj has got five of the wickets, and uh, Simon Harmer.
0: Uh, Simon Harmer. Four for in the first innings and three for here. Yeah, yeah. I, I wanted to ask you, Lippy, what, what do you think of him? He, he looked really good in that first innings and just missed out on the fifer. Um, but yeah, bit of a bit of a fairy tale there. Come back to the side, made his debut in 2015 and um, looked like he might not play again. But coming back in and could have a little swan song. Oh, I think it's great. I think it's uh, fantastic. I mean,
2: you know, you don't have to convince me to get more spinners into to test cricket. But, I, I mean, the thing is, it's going to be really hard for him because Maharaj is is a good bowler, and he showed that when he was over here in New Zealand. And, you know, there's just not many places around the world at the moment that you can go and, and play two spinners and they can play a meaningful part. I think it's amazing that they're, they're you know, doing that in South Africa. So, yeah, all power to hit to Hammer You know, he's... I guess in recent times I haven't seen a huge amount of him because he's been in county cricket and just dominating that but as you say he's he's had stacks and stacks of wickets in those, in those that, at that level for a long long time and obviously showing what he can do here so yeah we're very very excited to watch these highlights a bit later on
1: Just goes to show if you really want spin to play a part in test cricket Anybody can produce a wicket that is conducive to assisting spin bowling if you really want to. So, you know, cricket cricket groundsmen around the world, get on it. Make sure you've got a, a wicket that can support spin bowling. Uh, maybe not, you know, eight wickets and 16 overs <laughs> opening the bowling with two spinners. That's maybe a little bit too much. But it's awesome to see um, spin bowling playing a part in a traditional venue like South Africa that's normally just the home of pace and bounce and, you know, five-man seam attacks.
0: Well, from one swan song to another, let's go to another game that's actually in progress at the moment. A third one-day international, New Zealand and the Netherlands underway. The Netherlands needing an unlikely 150-odd to win, um, six down with 16 overs um, to go. But it it will be farewell to to Ross Taylor. We've seen a, a trademark slog sweep from him for six, but not a lot else um in this series from him really uh, what what's caught the eye lippy um for you in in this uh in this black cup squad across this tour
2: well yeah, i mean today obviously the game's still going on who knows maybe we'll see ross taylor come on to bowl and have a a final uh swan song with the ball uh in the 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 end of this game but i, I want to probably take it back to that second odi because Just a remarkable game when uh, you know New Zealand, and and really just want to. I mean, it's no surprise, but I want to highlight Tom Latham and just the effort that he uh, put forward in that second game. New Zealand's thirty-two for five. Everyone is freaking out. This is a team that you know New Zealand red-hot favourites. We're not expected to lose a game to the Netherlands, but you know before the series, people were going, "Oh, what are the Netherlands even doing?" Over here, the casual fans that I mentioned before, those the, those people are saying, oh, I didn't even know the Netherlands had a cricket side and uh, black caps are playing them and all this kind of stuff. New Zealand's facing a loss in, in staring it in the face and Tom Latham's come out, scored a tremendous 140 and turned things around to 264. He even umpired the game at one stage when he was dismissed told uh, told the umpires that there was uh, not enough people in the circle and it was a no ball. He, he Everything he did in the field and when he was captaining, it just seemed to work. And I think people are going to downplay that innings and go, oh, look, it was the Netherlands. But I really feel like that was an incredibly precious situation. And Tom Latham has just come in and delivered. And he just looked a million dollars. You know, I'm sure that that Bangladesh... You know, it would have been... That that loss to Bangladesh in the Tests, he he captained in that game as well, and I'm sure that that must in the back deep dark parts of his mind must have been going, oh no, you know I've lost a Test to Bangladesh this summer at home, I'm going to lose a game to Netherlands here, and and this could be you know, everyone's going to be going, what is going on with this New Zealand side? But it, he was just fantastic, and his birthday as well. So yeah, just just a, a fantastic effort from Latham in that game.
1: I think the opposite, Stu. I think he walked out there to bat thinking there's no way I'm going to let us lose two key games in this in this series on my watch. I mean, let's face it, he went to the back of the games cupboard and he raided the Monopoly set and he got all the chance cards and all the community chess cards and he just kept playing get out of jail, get out of jail, get out of jail time after time after time, rolled a few doubles, ended up on Mayfair with a hotel and, and, and bought New Zealand a, a an unlikely victory from 32 per five. He's been outstanding this series, Tom Latham. Will Young, another player, missed out in that second game but has, has racked up, uh, bookended his three match series with 100 and then another 100 today 106 I think he got maybe he got 120 today actually um, batting at number three so he's been a real highlight for New Zealand Um, what did you think of Michael Bracewell's debut series for for New Zealand he hasn't set the world on fire with the bat but has he shown enough promise for selectors to stick with him do you think
2: I think it's a hard one for him in terms of uh, his effort with the bat I mean he's you know didn't really didn't bat in the first game cuz we chased that down very comfortably the second game he's he you know he's one of those 32 for 5 and i guess you could say he could have shown more responsibilities hooked one down to to fine leg and been caught and then in this last game he's come in you know at the end of the innings when uh are trying to score quick runs and he's been dismissed so I think it's a hard one to actually analyse uh, his performance. If you look, you know, a week before that series, he scored two very impressive scores against the Netherlands with a um, when he was in a much more prominent role when he was the the lead batter in in that series. So, I, I think he'll take some heart from that. I, I in terms of his uh, his bowling is probably where he's had the most impact in this series. Certainly in that second game. I mean, you know, we talked about um, Michael Ripon and his efforts through the gate in that first game last week when we were on the podcast. Michael Bracewell said, you know, uh, Michael Rippon, just hold my beer here because it, it, he just produced something even more delicious to, to Peter Seelar and then actually did the same to uh, to Michael Rippon himself when he charged down the wicket and, and uh, you know, through the gate, stumping, easy stumping there for Latham, but... You know I think there's certainly enough there to be excited and, and I think probably for uh, for Bracewell what really helps him now is that he actually looks to have developed into someone who's better than a part-timer with the ball you know' it he bowled in the power play today it didn't you know it didn't go especially well Stefan, Stefan Myberg uh, you know hit him hit him around a little bit. But I think it's 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 obviously going to help his case if he can say, well, look, I can contribute with the ball because you've got someone like Ratchan Ravindra who's the, been the spin bowling all-rounder recently. You know, there's been someone like Joe Walker who's actually had a really, really good domestic season for ND. We've got Ajaz, of course, as, as our number one spinner. We've got Ripon, all, all the excitement about him after that first game. Things have, you know, quietened a little bit after the, these next couple of games. But... I think it's just great that there's there's starting to get a bit of depth in the, in the New Zealand spin bowling ranks and if and if Bracewell can show himself and continue that performance uh, with you know in domestic cricket then I, I think there's probably more opportunities for him on the horizon with uh, the fact that there's going to be you know split teams in, in all sorts of different formats so yeah I, I think he's done enough to to stick around and be close to the squad again.
0: Well, Lippy, for our ardent viewers that have waited to the end of the podcast, they're not going to be disappointed, I'm sure, with the Plunkett Shield wrap-up. Auckland all but home in the Plunkett Shield. Do you want to give us a little explainer as to what's going on there in, in true baldy fashion? I will do that. I will
2: do that. I just want to make a couple of quick points more about the the Netherlands-New Zealand I, I do want to highlight Stefan Myberg. I, we mentioned him just before. I think this is, I heard before he's actually retiring from from the Netherlands. But my main point is actually to uh, to segue into uh, his brother, Johan, who actually played for Canterbury a few years ago. And I was sure that he was going to play for New Zealand. I, I, he was a seriously, seriously good cricketer. He averaged 40-odd in first-class cricket for New Zealand. I think he scored an 80-odd in a, a, a game for um, Canterbury against... Uh, England at one point he looked a class above I played a, played a bit against him in club cricket I really think he c- could have been the Devon Conway before the Devon Conway if, if uh, maybe not to, to that degree but yeah I think he could have been a, a very successful test cricketer for New Zealand until he decided to move to the UK and obviously we've got this far and uh, we haven't really mentioned Ross Taylor, I know it's been the summer of swan song for Ross Taylor and you mentioned that you know, he, he he hasn't really given us what we wanted in this series. We got the slog sweep for six. I think I would have settled for that if you'd if you told me that, especially when he was coming in with only 10 overs to go. But, you know, I, I just, I, I sort of feel like it's too soon to maybe talk about Taylor and, and the, the legacy that he's left. It's, but it is remarkable what he's done. 450 international matches for New Zealand, so many memorable innings. I mean, that World Test Championship's going to live long in, in the mind of New Zealanders, him hitting those winning runs. I, you know, It. I, I just think that he he's going to go down. You just won't find people in New Zealand cricket that really would even utter a bad word about Ross Taylor. And he's been there through some really tough times. And I'm just delighted that he's been able to kind of finish the, his career at a point where New Zealand cricket is tasting some of the success that he's worked so hard uh, to to get us in a place. So yeah, I'm, I'm just yeah truly delighted, uh, and and I'll miss I will miss him a lot uh, whenever I see New Zealand play. So yeah, sad to see him go, and I uh, you know I, I think it'll be it was certainly sad watching him uh, at the national anthem with his kids, and I think there'll be a, a few tears when I uh, catch the end of this game and, and he bows out and we see the the speech and all that. It's going to be uh, a, A tough one to watch.
1: So, Stu, mathematically, Auckland can still be beaten in the Plunkett Shield, but it's going to take a hell of a performance. It's all but certain now that that Auckland will win the Plunkett Shield off the back of um, some pretty good recent form, yeah?
2: Yeah, yeah, look, sorry. So, yeah, diverted away from Binksy's original question there, but I I think you're spot on. I mean, yeah, sort of weird circumstances last week. Uh, We had uh, the ND-CD game which was abandoned actually on the last day because of uh, COVID cases in the ND camp, not before Tom Bruce polled on a big double hundred for CD. But then rain in the Canterbury game versus Canterbury Otago game meant that that game was a draw and everyone had sort of thought, okay, Auckland's won. They can't be caught. Uh, it's, a, it's a weird sort of situation this year because Auckland started late, so they aren't playing the 10 games that, that the other Plunkett Shield or um, that the other Plunkett Shield sides have played. But look they, we said it last week I think that they they've just been dominant um, you know since well, since, since uh, probably the start of the year they've just been fantastic and they uh, they they haven't looked back at the Plunkett shield whenever there's been setbacks in terms of players leaving. I think that the next game that's due to start this week it's pretty much an Auckland A side almost it looks like on paper. But it wouldn't surprise me if they just continue to perform because they've just been yeah just been absolutely brilliant and um, yeah I just want to give a big shout out and congratulations I, I think they they do still need one bonus point uh, from their next two games to win the comp but um, it would take something absolutely remarkable for them not to to get a batting bonus point or a bowling point in this uh, in the rest of the season so yeah well done to Auckland and uh, richly deserved title holders.
0: Well, team, that does wrap up another episode of the Top Order podcast this week in cricket. We are going to be back in your feeds with more Cricketing Hall of Fame from next week onwards, as well as probably a focus on the IPL as we get into the middle stages of that tournament and international cricket finishing up certainly down on these shores and then the Northern Hemisphere season uh, whilst underway and still pretty chilly in uh, the UK. I, I saw some Instagram footage of Stuart Broad at their Knots um, photo day, where it was snowing as they had the team photos taken for the start of the English season.
2: Must have been a busy, yeah. Uh, must have been a busy photo shoot because I see he's being rested for the first game. Y-
0: yeah. Well, look. <laughs> let's not go in. Let's not go into that. Obviously, England started it first, resting him for uh, a Test <laughs> series. But look, I'm sure he is targeting. That first test match of the summer, um, as you know, his little goal on his, uh, on his wall chart. So he'll be getting miles in the legs, I'm sure. Um, and yeah, hopefully, a, a return uh, for him and his partner in crime, Jimmy Anderson. But we've gone on enough, enough about that on the podcast over the course of the last few weeks. So, look, um, whilst Lippy hijacked the outro, it is good night from us here, um, all in Auckland. It's good night and God bless from us here. Stay tuned to the feed for much more cricket. Um, as we come into the business end of the IPL. Stay tuned. See you soon.